Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I am Ulrich Purcell. I am the founding host of the podcast. I've crewed up on sets for, you know, over 10 years since college. Um, I've worked on dozens of shorts, features, and um, other things, TV shows. And I am just finishing up my uh, first feature film as a writer-director for The Alternate. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer-director, producer, and sometimes casting director with two features under my belt. Uh... All the way oof, under my belt. That I need to update that. Um, I'm also a former film critic and a current distribution consultant. He used to manage the Creative Distribution Initiative at Sundance. Uh, can we keep that in? I'm just going to go for it. Um, this week, we have filmmaker and slam dance film festival. Oh, fuck. <laughs> this week, we have filmmaker and slam dance film festival co-founder, author, and all-around indie film expert, Dan Mervish, on the show to talk about how he has carved a career for himself as an indie filmmaker and managed to direct and produce six feature films, including his latest, 18 and a Half. 18 and a half is in post-production now. It's really exciting, and um, he's still fundraising, so support Dan. Dan is a uh, fountain of indie film knowledge, so if you're looking to make movies and you want some answers, this is definitely an episode for you. Uh, but don't go away afterwards, because we have a short film from filmmaker Shane Anderson called His Guy Thursday. And we, if we have time, we will do a little update in You've Got Mail. So without any more blah, 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 here's our conversation with Dan Mervish. Dan, uh, let me see if I could get this right. Uh, just to introduce everyone to you, we went to the same undergrad and the same graduate school, and you're from Nebraska, which is the state of my heart. Is that? I just want. I mean, this is not a question. I actually just wanted to get that on camera that we have this in much in common. Yeah, those are the three things we have in common, as well as professionally, we have similar things in common. But yes. Um, amazing. Okay, that got in. I had to get that out of the way. But okay, so in the beginning of our rapid fire questions, um, oh, oh, go big red. Um, I know that's probably not that high school team, but I, you know, it translates to all schools in Nebraska. Um, okay, can you give us like the short log line, you know, one minute max elevator pitch for eighteen and a half? Yeah, uh, 18 and a Half is my new feature film. It is a 70s Watergate conspiracy thriller slash dark comedy. That's amazing. That's it. <laughs> you, you left off uh, one of the most exciting things about it is starring Bruce Campbell, who, uh, oh my God. <laughs> yes, yeah, I was. that's the next sentence is if, if there are two floors on the elevator, then I add with an amazing cast, including... Willa Fitzgerald, John McGarro, uh, he's getting all kinds of praise for First Cow, um, uh, Kathy Curtin, Vondi Curtis-Hall, Richard Kind, Sullivan Jones, who was just in Slave Play that had 12 Tony nominations, uh, and the, featuring the voices of uh, Ted Ramey, uh, John Cryer, and the, the in inimitable uh, Bruce Campbell as Richard Nixon. Wow. Um, so how many days did you shoot the film? Uh, I think it was 15. 
Now, keep in mind, it was split up by six months in between. Because of the pandemic, right? Because of pandemic, yes. So we shot 11 days in March and then took a six-month healthy hiatus or pandemic pause. <laughs> and in and exactly six months later in September, we shot the last four days. Uh, what can you speak of regarding the budget? What was the rough budget? Uh, I should not speak very specifically about that, but it was well under a hundred million. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how long do you spend working on the film from, uh, you know, coming up with the idea to it eventually being released? Um, came up with the germ of the idea or the, uh, on the day after the election in November, 2016, I was actually showing dailies of my last film, Bernard and Huey to Jules Pfeiffer, who wrote, who wrote that script, um, uh, out in the Hamptons or actually Shelter Island, uh, on the tip of Long Island. And spent that, and that everyone, of course, is talking about Trump being elected and how horrible it was, uh, unless you were a fan of Trump's, and then I guess it was nice. But um, uh, but inevitably, the conversation went back to Nixon a lot because Jules was one of the big political cartoonists uh, writing at the time. Nixon, he won a Pulitzer Prize for it, uh, and you know, and the big last takeaway from him was, you know, hey, we survived Nixon, we can survive Trump. But we spoke a lot about Nixon and Watergate and. Uh, and then that night, I spent the night at my friend Terry Keefe owns a motel uh, just across a ferry from uh, from Shelter Island in a place called uh, Greenport, uh, New York, on the North Fork of Long Island. And it turns out Terry's grandparents built this motel called the Silver Sands Motel in the 50s and 60s. And Terry's been running it for about eight or nine years. And he's really kind of preserved it. And it looks like it's right out in 1974. So, and Terry was with me when we were talking to Jules. And uh, so we're like, hmm, Nixon, Watergate, location, 1974. Oh, what can we do here? And Terry said, oh, uh, you know, he shot, there's been a lot of fashion shoots and episodics and music videos that he shot there. But he said, um, no one's ever shot a feature there. And if I wanted to shoot a feature here, uh, it, it's available in the winters when the motel's not being used. And that was when I was like, hmm. I think there might be something here. And so that was it. So that was, um, I guess, a little over four years ago. And how big was the crew? Uh, all diminutive people. Um, no, they were, they were no, no tall crew members among them. Uh, I think it was about 20, you know, between 20 and 23, something, something like in that range, you know, pretty, pretty bare bones, but everybody got paid and, you know, enough of just barely enough of everyone to get the job done. And then compared to all your other projects, how difficult was this one? Well, this was the first project I've had during a global pandemic. <laughs> I don't know if it'll be the last one, but it was definitely the first one. Um, so it was the first film I've had that had this major gap of six months in between the first part of the shoot and the second part of the shoot. Um, I, that said, we, we were able to kind of adapt and roll with it and, and use that time to our advantage. Like I, I don't think that extra time really set us back in any meaningful way and certainly creatively didn't hurt us. And if anything may have helped us. So, um, 
But no, in ter- in general, though, in terms of the scope, the budget, the size of the crew, the kinds of actors we had, it was very similar to most of the films I've done. Um, this is not in the outline. I wanted to ask a little bit about um, the way you make movies. Like you said, just enough people, I think, I, I can't quote you, but just enough people to get it done, right? And you've made seven features over the... Uh, roughly, yeah, half a dozen or so. Right. So um, is, is it by choice or is it like you um, have you approached larger money and you didn't like that experience? Is it by choice to work this way? I mean, I, I, I know it sounds silly because a lot of us don't really want to rough it, but maybe you really love the creative control and don't want to wait for money to roll in. I'm just curious um, the strategy. Uh, that's a great question because one assumes that, oh, I, you know, I, I, I'm an artiste and I would turn and I have turned down hundred million dollar films left and right. No, that is not the case. Uh, that said, I've been up for those films at once or twice in my life and didn't get them. But um, no, I, I do enjoy, I think the key thing you said there was wait. Do I like to wait for films? So the way that most kind of independent films kind of between that million and $20 million budget get made are you, you have this chicken and egg problem with finding actors that are famous enough that you can then raise money and you can't get the cast until you get the money. You can't get the money until you get the cast. And I have tried to make movies that way in the past. And I found what many people find is that you can wait forever and still never make that movie. I have a friend who's had amazing cast attached to his film. He's been working on it for 13 years. Still never got it off the ground. Uh, In the case that I was doing it, we were, you know, on and off spent seven years trying to get that film made. Um, So what I have then sort of proactively decided is not to go that route because my feeling is I would rather make the low budget movie than not make the big budget movie. Um, Sort of as a creative and career decision. I was like, you know what? I would rather do that. I would rather wait, spend my time making a a movie uh, rather than waste my time not making any movie. Um, And that's, that's not the right decision for everyone. You know, Um, there's nothing wrong with waiting around because sometimes when it works, it works great. You know, that's fine. But I think I'd rather look back at my life and say, oh, here's a body of work of films that I made with good people, good cast, good crew. Um, they weren't necessarily the most famous people, but they're pretty famous. You know, like that's that's a key thing is I've been able to get, you know, well-known actors in, in really almost all my films um, and still do it this way. Uh, and, you know, and everyone on the crew, you know, survives and makes it through. <laughs> but even raising just like a few hundred thousand dollars is extremely difficult. So how do you how do you even do it on the scale that you're doing it at? Here's my uh, my methodology, and again, it doesn't work for everyone, but um, for me, it has worked. And this is largely influenced by Robert Altman, who was a mentor of mine on my uh, first film, especially. But I got to know him then, and his. Speaking of Nebraska, uh, his grandson, Dana Altman, who lives in Nebraska, um, is still one of my producing partners on on pretty much all my films. So the thing that Robert Altman kind of instilled in Dana and me is is the um, is the idea that, you know, set a start date for your film, 
tell everyone the train's leaving the station and you're making the movie and either they're on board or they're not on board. And, you know, he was absolutely right. hundred percent right. Uh, and I, I mean, it, look, it was easier for him because he was Robert Altman and he already had, you know, amazing clout and he could get really, really amazing actors. But even on our level, um, it, it, it was definitely the best advice and, and, and a great kind of methodology. So specifically what I do on my films, and this has really been for the last four or five films, is, um, you know, I come up with either the script. Well, first of all, I reverse engineer it a little bit. So I figure out what would be the best way, what are the best things to, to attract famous actors? you know, or name actors or, or at, least, at the very least good actors. Um, because what I have, what I did figure out early is you, you can make an independent movie with no name actors, uh, whether you should or not isn't, is another matter entirely. Um, I mean, if it's your first film, yeah, you'll work with anyone you can. That's great. Um, but it's a, a sustainable operation that it doesn't necessarily work. Um, both to get your films into festivals, get distribution, get audiences to see the film. In any case, um, so I kind of start with the premise, how do I find a project that will get, um, you know, that will attract really good actors? And there's, you know, four or five things that work. A musical, because actors love to sing and they really get a chance to sing, especially if they're, if they're gonna sing live. So I've done two musicals. Um, uh, if you have a film that is based on, or a script that's based on something with intrinsic pedigree, so a novel, a play, um, a comic book, something like that, um, that has worked. So the film I did called Between Us was based on a hit off-Broadway play. Um, and I knew that that would, in and of itself, attract talent, and it did. Um, uh, then the next film I did after that, Bernard and Huey, was based on a, a script by Jules Pfeiffer based on comic strips that actually went back to 1957, I think, um, that went back 60 years, but, uh, and he'd written the script in 1986. So it, it, the script itself was, um, was interesting, but in terms of pedigree, it was written by Jules Pfeiffer, who has a Pulitzer and Oscar and OB, two Tony nominations, better than an EGOT, that's a Putin, um, if you add up the letters. And, um, and I knew a lot of actors would be familiar with his work and more importantly, their agents and their managers would be in. And sure enough, we got an amazing cast in, in that film. Uh, this film, 18 and a half is a little different because it wasn't based on any pre-existing, you know, IP or play or anything. It was an original script. I came up with the story uh, with my friend, uh, um, what's his name, Daniel Moya. Uh, who'd worked a little bit on Bernard and Huey with me and uh, and we collaborated on the script, but it was, you know, we, it's, it's our original idea. Um, but it's based on the events surrounding Watergate. So that's something like, oh, okay, it's a, it's a Watergate thing. Like that's something people can kind of get their hat, you know, wrap their heads around. Um, and also hopefully by now, by this point in my career, hopefully I bring a little bit of prestige to a project, not much certainly but um but the, but at least people can go oh okay that guy's made movies before and he's made them with good actors and you know they didn't hate the experience so it couldn't be that bad um anyway so the point is i try to but the other thing too is is even even with an original script like 18 and a half is we we come up with really good parts because that's the thing about actors is they don't honestly don't tell everyone this but actors don't always read the whole script 
where they don't always care about the whole script. They care about their part. And is that, and is it a good, interesting part for them? Does it have monologues in it? Because actors love monologues because worst case scenario, they can always put a monologue on their reel and no one else is going to be in the frame with them. So it doesn't matter how bad the other actors are, as long as they're good, they can do monologues. So actors love monologues. Um, you know, and if it's a, if it's a comedy, then you get dramatic actors interested. If it's a drama, you get, you know, comedic actors interested. Um, and so that, so even though this one was an original script, we definitely wrote it with, the, you know, with a keen eye towards, okay, what is going to attract talent? What, what is it about these characters? What is it about the dialogue that's going to want actors, you know, make actors want to do it? So anyway, so all of which is to say, I start with that premise. And then the main thing is I, um, is on most of my films, I've done some sort of crowdfunding campaign. 18 and a half, we did it on Seed and Spark. The last two films we did on Kickstarter, even before that, before Kickstarter was the thing, I was doing it on Facebook or MySpace, essentially. Um, and the trick is to not try to raise your whole budget that way if you're doing a feature, because that's, that is, a, you will most likely fail. But if you can raise 10 or 20% of your budget um, through a crowdfunding campaign, because the key thing about crowdfunding is that it's cast agnostic financing. So if you can get as much cast agnostic financing, they, you know, they, these are your friends, family, or even people you don't know, but they love the project. They love the script. They love you. They love whoever is on the team prior to you getting actors. They're not doing it because, oh, so-and-so is famous. Um, you can get as much money there. That's enough. You know, if it's 10 or 20 or $30,000, uh, which is great. If you can get that, that is enough to set a start date. And then you've got a start date. And then once you have that start date and, and, you know, and then you can, you know, the trick is to have enough confidence to be able to say, yeah, we've only raised $30,000, but that's not all the money we're going to raise. That's only, you know, whatever, but it's enough to set a start date and to, and, you know, the important thing about a crowdfunding campaign is the hardest person to convince that you're making a film is usually yourself. So um, it does, it does, you know, convince you that you're, you're making this thing. And then you set a start date, you hire a casting director, use that money to hire a casting director. If you need to hire a lawyer, you hire a lawyer. But more importantly, you, you know, everybody knows you can make a movie on an iPhone for 20 or $30,000. Doesn't mean you should, doesn't mean you will, but you can. So that gives you the confidence to tell everyone else, yeah, we're making this thing on April 15th. I don't care if I'm shooting on my iPhone or, or we're shooting it on Alexa. We're making it on April 15th or whatever date you pick. Um, now, that doesn't mean you can't change that date. And of course you will, inevitably, everybody does. But the thing that I found about casting, and again, we kind of learned this from Altman, was that you know actors abhor a vacuum in their schedule. They love, actors are intrinsically nervous and a little anxious prone. And so if they don't have anything in their schedule, they get very nervous and they start calling their agents and their managers. And if there's one thing agents and managers like almost as much as money, it's to be left alone by their clients. And so if, so if you can tell an agent and a manager, hey, we've got this start date. Do you have any actors that are available you know, for a two or three week period or, even, or if it's a one day cameo, great. Um, and that'll at least get them off your back for, for a few weeks. They'll be like, great. I don't care how much money it is. Fantastic. Well, I'm sending them the script. And, 
you know, once I kind of realized that, that that is actually a bigger motivating factor than money in this town is, is fear and anxiety, you know, fear that they'll be left out of and, you know, an award-winning film or a great project or fun time on set and, you know, lack of anxiety about not having some, something in their schedule. That is much more important than money. Um, far more important because honestly, the kinds of actors that I've been able to get, they're not doing my films for the money. These are all people that have been on sitcoms. They've been on episodic shows. They've been on Marvel movies or, you know, whatever other, you know, Judd Apatow movies. They've made their money in other ways. Um, so they're not doing it for the money and the agent isn't doing it for the money. So then it's like, okay, great. Let's figure out the real reason they want to make this film. And inevitably then the one, the actors you do get are there for the right reasons, whatever those reasons are. And they're probably gonna have a better time anyway than, you know, than if you were paying someone millions and millions of dollars and then they show up and it's a tiny indie set, you know, they'll be miserable and you'll be miserable. Um, anyway, so that's more or less how I do it. And then meanwhile, the, uh, the, and the other trick is this, is that the crowdfunding campaign is you shouldn't think of it as as an end to itself. Like I said, you, you shouldn't expect to raise your whole budget that way, unless you're doing a short or a pilot or something. Maybe then you can. But it it always leads to further crowdfunding, which is to say, like, say your college roommate from WashU, um, <laughs> we both went there, um, you know, say your college roommate gives you $40. Great. Fantastic. That's all you could ask for from your college roommate. But then they post that video saying, hey, I just contributed to this film on their website or on their Facebook page or Instagram or whatever. Um, and then their sister who married the Silicon Valley investor sees it and now they're giving you $10,000, you know? And that's not directly <laughs> through the crowdfunding campaign, but indirectly it is. So almost all, the all the, almost all the money eventually that you do raise comes indirectly from the crowdfunding, but it starts there because I think and all the tools that you do to set up a crowdfunding campaign, the pitch video, the business plan, the, the perks, you're going to use those things when you're talking to equity investors anyway. Um, you know, the other thing that I've done on most of my films is I've teamed up with a 501c3 uh, fiscal sponsor. So on the last couple of films, it's been the film collaborative, but there's other folks out there. I work there. I do. I'm... A <laughs> <laughs> Um, this was not a paid endorsement. Yeah. Um, so working with them in conjunction with the Kickstarter, with the crowdfunding has been great because it also, it gives another option to wealthy folks to say, Hey, uh, you may not, I know you're not going to make your money back. That's I'm the first one to always tell people that. Um, so do you want to get a tax write off, um, right away? And this is a way to do it that you basically people give money to the fiscal sponsor they keep 95 percent of it or no they keep five percent of it you get 95 percent of it um but the donor gets a write-off right away which you know for a lot of rich people or if it's a foundation or a family foundation or something like that that may be a perfectly good option um and maybe better than either investing or going through the uh, the crowdfunding um, but what I do find is that even when they don't take that option, the fact that you even gave it as an option inspires a lot more confidence that you're being transparent about the odds of success on these things, because these films don't make money and they shouldn't, they should be treated like, um, other art forms in our society, like, you know, community theater and symphony and opera and art museums and 
public radio, you know, yeah, you get a tote bag and you get a mug and you get a tax write-off and you, you don't expect Terry Gross to give you money if she makes money 20 years later. Like, no, that's not how public radio works. Why should we expect it to work that way in indie film? So, um, so I've been a big advocate for, um, for trying to raise money that way. And, and inevitably what happens is you talk to some rich folks and the more you tell them that they're not going to make their money back, the more they think, ah, so we are going to make our money back. <laughs> and I was like, Hey, I told you, you know, don't be shocked. Um, so, and because of that, I've had a lot of really great investors over the years that have not made their money back and still been really great investors and, and good friends uh, with a lot of them. And at least they feel like they're getting cultural capital out of the films mm -hmm. because on all my films, they've all had a theatrical release. They've all been seen one way or another by a lot of people. And we get the films out there. They've all played at multiple film festivals. So that's the one thing that I kind of, you know, can, can sort of uh, pitch to everyone. Well, let me jump in here for a second because um, I have this question that's again, always halfway formed and I'll see if I find it when I speak out loud. Um, you made these movies, you've just kind of acknowledged the patronage that you've received. Uh, and I assume a lot of your connections come from your history of making movies, but also slam dance and the whole slam dance connection, which we can get into. So I'm just trying to figure out if you're talking to an indie filmmaker and you're saying, you know, work in a lower budget than 100 million and cast name, you know, name actors. Um, I still think there's this expectation from that indie filmmaker that they're going to break through to another level, you know, direct that Marvel movie, 10 movies in. And I'm not seeing that happening. I'm not like not necessarily for you, Dan, but for in the general public. It's very hard to break through without certain suits or prestige associated with you that like makes it undeniable. OK, found my question. So um, is that a goal for you or do you do you see that same system of kind of suppressing the lower budget artist and how do you have plans to break through to the millions and trillions of tentpole movies? Well, um, it's a great question. And I think you're right. Part of it is just the expectations that people have or, you know, for indie film have always been, you know, wildly exaggerated, you know, and this goes back 25, 30, 50 years, you know, that really, you know, one, 1% 1 of indie films every year are going to be wildly successful and make their mark culturally. And, you know, and maybe only 5% are even going to get meaningful distribution. So what about the other 95%? Um, or what about the, you know, and even when you get an amazing film that breaks out like a Napoleon Dynamite, guess what? Those guys still got screwed by the distributor and didn't get all the money they were supposed to get so much so that one of the producers was so frustrated, he went back to school and got an MBA just so he wouldn't get screwed again. I mean, that's, they're very nice Mormon guys. So they, you know, that's how they express their frustration is by <laughs> getting a higher degree. Um, and that's Napoleon Dynamite that was, you know, made supposedly made $80 million in, you know, DVD and cable sales or whatever. So, yeah. So if that's as good as you're going to get, that's, that's pretty grim. Um, but as far as sort of career expectations, I think, you know, years ago I was at South by in 1995 with Omaha, the movie, um, my first film. And I remember being, in the audience uh, at a panel discussion. And it was, it was sort of the pantheon of like mid nineties indie superstars. It was 
Steven Soderbergh, Richard Linkletter, Robert Rodriguez, uh, 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 I don't know, Michael Moore may have, I don't remember everyone, Michael Moore may have been there, uh, but you know, it was all these amazing filmmakers. And then Greg Araki was at the end uh, and he was at the festival with Doom Generation. And all these guys were, and they're all amazing filmmakers and really nice guys, all of them. Um, and they were mostly guys, I think. Um, but the, uh, Alison Anders may have been there. I'm not sure, I don't remember. But the point was, is they were all telling these amazing stories. Oh, when I went to Sundance with my first film and signed the deal with Harvey Weinstein and you know, I was off to the races and winning the Oscars in Cannes and this, that and the other. And you're like, wow, yeah, fantastic. Great Soderbergh and great Linkletter, you know. Um, and then, you know, and then their careers, you know, settled in at whatever level they were. Uh, and then they, and they all go down the line and then they get to Greg Araki and you got an, I don't know how many of the audience know who Greg Rocky is, but he, at the time anyway, he was really, I mean, he still is a, a great filmmaker. Um, but at the time, Doom Generation was his fifth film. He'd been crank, he'd been making little 16 millimeter, super 16, like super tiny, $30,000, $40,000 little indie films on the, you know, LGBT indie film circuit in the, in the early nineties. And finally had built enough of a reputation that on Doom Generation, I think he got like seven or 800,000 from a French distributor to make the film. And it was playing at, at um, you know, at South By. And he was sitting on a panel with this amazing pantheon of filmmakers. And he says, well, that's great. Like, yeah, it'd be nice if I could, if me and every other filmmaker could hit a home run out of the park at our first at bat, like these guys, but most of us don't. And so what you have to do is keep making enough films so that your combined body of work adds up to enough of a career that you can then raise enough money to make a film to get to that same level as those guys. And, and I think that really stuck with me over the years. I mean, it has um, that, you know, we're not just making a, you know, we're not filmmakers, we're films makers, you know, hopefully <laughs> we're, you know, you, you, like yeah you're gonna make one film and then you're gonna make another one after that and it may be it may not be as good maybe better you don't know but the point is at some point someone will say wow this person's made a lot of movies you know they must have something going on uh, because it is hard it is hard to do it and, and it's you know any idiot can make a, a film the, the first time because you don't know any better the hard part is making a second film <laughs> that's probably the hardest one to make uh, and then it's hard to, you know, keep making it after that. But um, so that's kind of how I've kind of calibrated sort of my expectations for success is that, you know, when I look back on it, it's like, yeah, I, I'm proud of all these movies I've made. Why that's that is in and of itself successful. Why shouldn't, you know, um, and look, if Hollywood wants to call, I'm literally a block and a half away from Sony Studios. But I live south of them, which means technically they're in my shadow. I'm not in their shadow. So, I mean, the sun has to be really low for them to get the shadow. But you get the idea. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. Like, you can literally be in the, in the belly of the beast in Hollywood and still have very little to do with Hollywood, per se. But, you know, it's all fine. I'm... So, to go back to what you just said... Um... You're talking about the thing that we hear all the time, where someone goes out and makes a movie, and they just make one movie, and then that's it. They don't make any more movies ever, maybe. So how did you get your second film f 
film made and like what was it that allowed you to get it done you know and and continue you know so it's a great question because the the second one was really tough so i thought i thought the second one was going to be easy i was going to make it in 1997 just two years after you know my last film came out like when i was at south by i met an investor who wanted to put money into this what was going to be my next big film it was going to be a 1.2 million dollar you know sophomore film it was kind of a perfect kind of next level film and we were going to shoot it in texas and we were um five days away from shooting when the financing fell through um and this is after having spent like a couple hundred thousand just in pre-production you know anyway that was a very dispiriting experience let's put it that you know to put it mildly um for all kinds of reasons and we tried to get it up and running again uh, and then finally in 2001, we came close to getting it made again. We had Neil Young was going to produce it and do the music. Oh. Like, wow, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, and his, his producing partner, manager partner was going to be the main producer. I was spending a long time with him. We were casting. We had Peter Fondo, speaking of Nebraska, he was going to star in it. We, I was meeting all kinds of amazing actors, you know, for the other parts. And we were like, this is great. This is, we're ready to go, ready to make it again. And then 9-11 happened. And it was like, oh, well, that kind of put the brakes on that. You know, Neil was busy with benefit concerts, just Hollywood shut down, you know, everything shut down. And, and it was, you know, not a time for a happy-go-lucky modern-day postal Western, which is what that film was. And so, uh, so that put the brakes on that. And luckily, I had, um, during that time, I had just written another script. Uh, a real estate music, a real estate comedy called Open House that I wrote with my friend Larry Maddox. And during 9-11, like in those months after 9-11, we thought, well, in times of crisis, America loves to sing. So why don't we turn Open House into a musical and just start writing a bunch of songs for it and see if that works. And then as it turned out, and, and I, during that casting process for Stamp and Deliver, that was when I kind of learned that actors love to sing just because we had a casting director that would ask these questions. And, and, I, and I realized that American actors particularly all got their start in musical theater in high school, you know, high school musical program, you know, we're all in this together, right? They're all, you know, they're all. and so, so many actors like have this amazing, like, you know, longing to get back into doing musicals and, and for the most part, haven't done it since high school or maybe since Broadway and then they moved to LA or something. So. If you have a musical, you can get some really amazing actors. And we did. We got Anthony Rapp, who was just coming off the event. Uh, Sally Kellerman, who was an Oscar nominee, you know, because she wanted to do cabaret singing, you know, and Anne Magnuson. Just, and that was a, you know, I mean, we shot that thing for $20,000 on, on mini DV. Um, but which goes to the question that Ulrich had, sort of what got me out of that rut of what, trying to get this other film made at this much bigger level. And I really have to give props to Mark Forster, um, the director of uh, uh, Quantum of Solace and Finding Neverland and all kinds of things. Anyway, his first film had been at Slamdance um, called Loungers, which nobody has ever seen, but uh, it's a great film. Uh, and then his second film, and then he thought he was going to be like the next big something or other and had a hard time getting his next film made. And so he made a mini DV film. I forget the name. I think Megan Mullally was in it, in a drama. It played at Sundance in mm, probably like 2000 or 2001. I think 2001, yeah. Or well, it would have been 2002 because I ran into him on Main Street and he was at Sundance with this little mini DV film that all of a sudden was getting him a lot of attention in a way that his prior film had not done. 
And that's the film that really launched his career. Mm-hmm. And I ran into him at the Main Street Deli in Park City and was telling him, oh yeah, this I had this film that we tried for four or five years to get made. And he's like, you know what, man, the, these these Danish guys, they're all making these, uh, you know. Um, Dogma. Dogma films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, this is the time we got, you know, just grab a mini DV camera and don't worry about anything else and just make something, just make it on mini DV. And this was at a time when there were already some slam dance films. Um, uh, Deborah Eisenstadt had just shot a film on mini DV and the, the, um, the Russos, but the Maggio brothers had just done one. So I was like, oh yeah, this is, people are doing this now in, in the States. So, um, so that's what we did. It's that open house we shot. It was the first film, first feature shot on the Panasonic um, 24P mini DV, the DVX 100. Oh. Um, and it looked like the first film shot on that camera because we didn't know how to use it. But, um, but anyway, but it was you know it got me out of that rut, and we got a film made, and we're very happy with it. And then there's the whole Oscar story with that film, but um, which I don't know if you guys know about. No. No. What? Oh my gosh! So like a lot of films. Um, that film, which is called Open House, um, it, it was getting into festivals. Audiences liked it, critics liked it, and uh, distributors had no interest in it whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so I was like, it's a musical, aren't there a billion people in India? No, we don't want it. Um, so I was kind of in film purgatory that most filmmakers find themselves in. And uh, like all good Hollywood stories, this one starts with me walking out of the proctologist's office one day. And, um, <laughs> and- I had a call from my dear friend, Ariana Baca, who at the time, she's now the head of IFC Films, but at mm-hmm. the time she was a, uh, she was a head of acquisitions at, uh, at Miramax. And, uh, but I knew her from when she was an intern at Fine Line years before. Anyway, and she goes, hey, Dan, how's it going? I'm like, well, it's a little, you know, I'm walking funny, but other than that, I'm fine. Um, I said, hey, do you, do you want to pick up open house the the real estate musical she goes no that piece of crap no way i go well why are you bugging me uh and she goes well dan have you heard about this oscar category oscar category it's called um best original musical i said oscar for best original musical that's crazy talk i've never heard of such a thing she goes no 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 it's a real category that the academy has but they've just never activated it i said what do you mean that not activated it she says well the rules are very particular like you have to uh there have to be if there are five eligible musicals, original musicals in any given year, then they activate the category and three of the films get nominated and one of them wins. I was like, well, that's pretty good odds, right? Uh, but I said, but why hasn't this ever happened before? Said, wow, well, the rule, the eligibility rules are very arcane and very tough to, to, to do it. So it can't be based on a stage play. Uh, it can't have pre, pre-existing music, it has to be all original music for the film. It has to have the same songwriting team for all the songs and the songs have to tell the story of the narrative in the songs. It can't just be mood music. And so there had never been a year, you know, so Moulin Rouge wouldn't have counted, Chicago wouldn't have counted, all these films wouldn't have counted um, that we think of as musicals. Uh, but that year, Miramax thought they had two films that were going to be eligible for this category. And so they were looking for a couple patsies like me that would be <laughs> good enough to actually get a nomination. And I was like, sure, I'll be Harvey's Patsy. What could possibly go wrong with that idea? <laughs> and, um, 
So together we started to look for other films and we found a few. So Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who I knew a little bit through Slamdance, they, um, they were sort of our progenitors at Slamdance. Uh, they had just done Team America World Police and that had six songs. Oh, so one of the rules is it has to have at least five songs. That's key. <laughs> so they had six songs in Team America World Police and they were like, but it was a big Paramount release. And so we got them and Paramount to go, yeah, Sure, we're we're down with this. Why, you know, let's let's have fun. Let's uh, submit the film. Disney had an animated film, one of their last of their hand-drawn animated films, uh, Home on the Range. That, but Alan Menken, who had eight Oscars already, uh, we called Alan. He's like, sure, I've got room on the mantelpiece for one more Oscar. Easy peasy, I'll submit. And so we got Disney to submit. Um, Neil Young, who I knew from Stamp and Deliver, uh, he had just directed a film called Greendale, an obscure little film based on an album, but technically they had shot the movie before they released the album, so that made it eligible. Um, and, and our film, Open House, and then the two Miramax films, but the two Miramax films, as the ensuing weeks and months we would find out, um, were not eligible for all those same obscure reasons, so they were out of the running. So that left four films and we needed one more film well being the intrepid little slam dance filmmaker i said well screw it i'll just make another film um <laughs> so i was a couple of weeks away from going to a festival in um in oldenburg germany a uh, great indie film festival i've gone there a lot um and one of my actors, uh, Robert Peters, was coming with me. My producing partner was coming with me. And I'm friends with the guy who runs the festival. And he's a producer, too. Um, and we thought, you know what? Why don't we just shoot it while we're in Germany? You know, uh, so I borrowed a friend's, you know, DVX 100 again with the Sennheiser mic. And, then, and I was the crew. We came up with kind of an improvisable storyline. But we wrote a dozen songs in those two weeks before we left. And we, we sort of got our German cast assigned to us you know uh um you know and uh, and we were like okay let's go let's go make this thing we had nine days in germany um but the trick was it couldn't be too good the movie couldn't be too good because then it would take votes away from open house our film we needed our own patsy so we had nine days to make a bad german musical so like a real life version of the producers and, and pull our lead actress met us at the airport oh we are so excited to win the oscar and we're like yeah uh, she says, there's only two problems. I said, what could they possibly be? She says, well, well, I can't, I can't improvise and I can't sing. And I said, you're. <laughs> um, so we had all kinds of crazy adventures in Germany, shooting this thing, and then came back to LA and slapped together a cut of the film. And then on, and the deadline is December 1st and at 5 PM and at 4 55, uh, we were running up the stairs. Oh, the academy, their elevator wasn't working. The office is on seventh floor. So we're running up the stairs, running, running up the stairs, finally get there. Um, actually, yeah, the, the door was locked on the seventh floor. I had to go to the eighth, come back down. Anyway, and, um, and we're like, here you go. Here's your VHS or beta or whatever it was that we were turning in. Here's your fifth film. Because uh, we've been telling the academy for months that we were going to do this thing because we knew they were such sticklers for the rules. We're like, all right, as long as we have to abide by whatever weird rules they have. And they're like, ah, oh, you idiots! You know what kind of what kind of idiots go to go to Germany to make a bad German musical? And I was like, 
this guy, you know. So they're like, ah, now we got to take it to the Board of Governors. So the Board of Governors meets three days later and it's Tom Hanks and the studio heads and they all talk like this, you know, because it's the Academy, right? And they're like, Oscar for Best Original Musical, that's crazy talk. We've never heard of such a thing. And the guys on the music branch, it was their category. They're like, oops, yeah, we just didn't think anyone would do it. And um, (laughs) who are we going to give this thing to? Trey and Matt? These guys who showed up, hopped up on acid the last time they were nominated for an Oscar. No, they're like banned for life. Alan Menken, he's got eight. He's cut off, you know. Uh, Neil Young, they were pissed at him because he didn't show up for rehearsal one year when he was nominated. Uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, they didn't like Neil Young. And then my two films, their combined budget didn't add up to the cost of an Oscar gift basket. So they're like, no, this Murphy's guy, he's not getting any. So they canceled the category for that Documentary and foreign film. And so I do that. And they're like, well, what are you going to do about a kid? And I was like, well, I'll take Umbridge because really, what else can you take? You know, so we got a lot of press. We got in LA Times, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, uh, Reuters picked up the story and it ran all over the world. And based on the press that we got, we actually got a distributor for open house which then a small distributor but then like two months later they got bought out by the weinstein company miramax had just turned into the weinstein weinstein took this bought this company they put out the dvd and on the back of the box it says from the film that changed the rules of the academy awards you know (laughs) and if you think about it the goal here was actually not to win an oscar the goal was to get distribution because the whole point of this process was if you get an Oscar or even an Oscar nomination, some distributor will pick you up. So, well, by not getting an Oscar, we got a distributor. Um, so that's the story. And the irony is that, or not, I don't know if it's irony, but um, but they they actually reinstated the category the next year. That's and so they, cha- they did change the rules. They have what's called the Mervish rule. I call it that. <laughs> Uh, that says we have the right to activate this category if we see fit to activate this category or something goofy like that. Anyway, and so the point is to this day, the category is still on the books at the Academy and they have still never activated, didn't get activated this year. So if you are out there in podcast land and you want to make a musical, and by the way, it only has to be 41 minutes long because that's the definition of a feature by the Academy, under or over 40 minutes. Uh, you just have to make one film and then find like, you know, a half dozen Bollywood films, you know, to submit. And, you know, they can't reject the category then because that's just racist and they're pissing off a billion nuclear armed musical fans. You know, they're not going to do that. And then you win an Oscar. Um, and there have been, I've told this story a number of times over the years, and there have been a few, and I get invited to a lot of film schools to talk, and there have been a few film school teams that are like, yeah, we should do this. <laughs> and a couple of years ago, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, they thought they were gonna do it and they were gonna get a bunch of other film schools to go in together. And I, and I, was, I was hoping that was gonna happen, but I, I think they all graduated. I don't know what happened. <laughs> um, but that would be the way to do it, is you just get a bunch of people to kind of crowdsource five films. Anyway, so there you go, that's the Oscar story. <laughs> I know we're running out of time, but I have like, I just like picked one at random to ask is my last question. Auric, are you cool with me? I'm going to do it. Sure. I'm just um, doing yeah, it. do it. Go for it. Okay. Um, so Dan, you're so busy. And also I always see you on social media at the same time I am. We're both like very active. You are doing crowdfunding. You, you just said you speak to phone, you know, film school. So I'm trying to like 
is all of this a necessary evil or do you love it? Like, is the self-promotional slash educational slash transparency um, sub thread of being a filmmaker is is it part of the fun for you or is it like something that you feel like you have to do to break through and grow audiences? It's fun. I mean, I wrote, I write a lot of articles. I compile them into a book called The Cheerful Subversives Guide to Independent Filmmaking available from Focal Press and Rutledge. Um, and actually the second edition is coming out this summer. So I spent part of the pandemic working on the second edition. Um, I enjoy it. I, I, it's number one. It's like you said, it, it is a way for me to give back to other filmmakers at all the tricks that I've learned, like, why should they die with me, you know? Um, so I write a lot of articles for Filmmaker Magazine and other places, um, variety and things, um, and then put them in the book. And uh, yeah, because there's nothing really unique about what I do uh, that other people can't do. It's not like I'm a better filmmaker than most people. I'm probably worse, but um, I enjoy reaching out to other filmmakers, helping filmmakers uh, at all levels kind of learn the same tricks that I've learned over the years. And, um, and so I, I enjoy doing it, but, you know, truth be told, it's also, it winds up being a little bit of an added source of income too. You know, if you, if you write enough, you get paid to write. If you get, start getting invited to enough film schools, they, pay you to speak and you're like wow this is pretty cool um yeah i've even done some things where on my last film there were a couple film festivals where i got rejected from the film festival but then they were interested in having me come and either and and give a guest lecture or workshop Mm -hmm. and so i actually got paid to go to film festivals that i got rejected from (laughs) i was like that's the secret sauce right there they reimburse your submission fee as well because that would have been the double whammy no, but it was. I made more. Definitely getting rejected from festival. I was like, "This is great." Now I now I figured it out. I just need to make really really bad movies and not get invited to film festivals, and I'll make more money going to film festivals. <laughs> um, I was like, "Why didn't anyone else think of this?" Um, so maybe I shouldn't be telling people that idea. But uh, but yeah, I enjoy. It. I enjoy everything from wearing a sandwich board and standing in front of Lemley's Santa Monica and promoting my film uh, to going to Park City and helping promote other films at Slamdance every year or this year virtually, um, and uh, you know going on social media. But it's you know, but I'm also sly. I know that that is that is this the one one of the reasons for being active on social media, as it were, is because that is how you get people that you are then going to hit up for crowdfunding four years later. You know, that's the you know it is it's it's a purely it's not purely mercenary, but it is it is because what happens when you make a film, you're inevitably go- you're either going to lose all the friends you had making that film or you're going to be feel feel really bad about asking those same people for money for your next film so you need to constantly keep making new friends you know (laughs) because chances are you're not going to keep all the old ones um and that's that's a grim reality of making movies and probably of a lot of other things in life too um, so it is an incum- it is incumbent on you every time you go to a festival, make friends with those people, make friends with the audience members, make friends with people online. Um, I don't know. Today I spent like a couple hours just going on LinkedIn. I don't like, I almost never go on LinkedIn, but I was like, you know what? 
I almost never go on LinkedIn. I should go on LinkedIn and see <laughs> if there's interesting people because we are still raising money for 18 and a half. I got your update <laughs> today. There you go. Good. Yeah. So exactly. So, you know, we are, you know, we, I just locked picture on the film, which is great. And, um, and we're working on sound and music, but we still have a lot of money. We still have, honestly, we have debts to pay for having done COVID testing uh, back in September. You know, that's, that was, it, it was expensive to do that shoot back in September and it wasn't easy. And, and we still have debts from that. So, um, but also we have color correction. We have a couple of visual effects, there's things like that. The point is we still need to raise money. Never, never stop raising money. On the other hand, if I had waited for the perfect cast and all the perfect money to come into the budget, you know, the pandemic was a perfect example of that. Going back to the original question that Ulrich had, um, we never would have made the movie. You know, we never would have gotten, so if we had delayed one week, we probably never would have made this movie. Um, and there were all kinds of reasons why people wanted us to delay a week. Oh, you'll get a different cast. You'll get better cast. You'll get more money. And I was like, nope, we are sticking with that start date, which we'd already pushed a few times. Um, and we got 80% of it in the can by the time the pandemic hit. And that was enough to say, yeah, we're, you know, that's enough to finish making this movie and, and make it worthwhile. And we could see what we had. Um, so, yeah, and we had fun doing it, too. I mean, even when we were out there in March, while the whole world was collapsing, Omaha Steaks was the sponsor. And we were just eating tons and tons of raw meat. I mean, we were cooking it. We were barbecuing it. But it was like, well, if we have to go out, <laughs> going out well-fed. High on protein, probably all, you know, not good for our arteries, but it was really good for our tummies. So, um, and we didn't have to eat each other. We didn't have to eat crew members either. So that was helpful. Uh, so yes. So the key is have fun while you're doing it. Um, by the way, also marry well. I mean, both you and my wife figured out marry a Nebraskan. That's never a bad thing. Um, <laughs> But I would recommend, you know, a doctor or, an, or better yet, an entertainment lawyer, you know, um, uh, and get be smart about real estate. I mean, we rent our house out for commercials from time to time, you know, and that makes good money. But everyone I know who's been successful in art, not necessarily film specifically, but any kind of art form has somehow their secret has been real estate one way or the other. They're flipping houses or airbnb or doing something smart with real estate. So if, you, if you take one class that isn't a film class, it should probably be a real estate class. So the, the one thing we hardly talked about, at, did actually didn't talk about at all in this conversation was slam dance. So my last question, I want to just talk about like how involved are you with the festival still? Like, are you, you know, <laughs> very good. <laughs> Like, are you watching all the films? Are you, like, how, what is your involvement? Um, you know, it's the the nice thing about Slam Dance is its motto is uh, by filmmakers for filmmakers, or as I like to say, by unemployed filmmakers for unemployed filmmakers. And um, and it's true, we're all everyone who runs it, we're all actively working or unworking filmmakers. Um, and so all the programming is done by alumni filmmakers, and um, and most of the organizing as well. So because of that, what it, the nice thing is it means that if I'm making a film one year, like this year in particular, um, I didn't have to do any programming because there were enough other people that could. So I did not see, I wasn't involved with any of the selections this year. Um, but at the festival itself, 
uh, for a number of years, I do an opening night poem. Uh, and I also host the Hot Tub Summit, which is a, the wettest panel discussion in Park City. Um, this year, we did it on Zoom uh, the other day, and it was great. Nobody got electrocuted. Um, so that was a relief because we were afraid, you know, if people are putting their MacBook Pros in the hot tub, in their own personal hot tubs, that's not a good idea. So, um, so thankfully, everyone <laughs> stayed dry and, uh, and safe. So that was good. Um, but it was, it was good. It was actually like the way we run the hot tub summit every year is it's essentially a, a panel discussion in a hot tub. It's not that different from, from a zoom call and the added advantage this year by doing it through zoom, because what it is is we usually take alumni filmmakers and other experience, either Oscar winning or Sundance winning filmmakers, and then talk to the new round of filmmakers and just kind of give them career advice and life advice um, is a nice thing is we have people zoom in from all over the world. We had an Oscar nominee who was literally walking up and down a beautiful beach in the Philippines. Uh, we had a filmmaker in Italy, a filmmaker in, in, in London, a lot in the U S one in Tokyo. So in a weird way, it was actually uh, we could get more people involved with it this year um, than if we normally would have. Um, so, yeah, so I'm kind of uh, one of the de facto kind of mentors, you know, for the new filmmakers. A lot of them have stayed in this garage over the years that I'm in right now uh, when they come to L.A. after the festival. So, um, but yeah, but we have a wonderful team running the festival itself. And um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm still involved, but not far from day to day involvement. So, so thankfully. But it's tough. I mean, it was uh, the first seven years I was very involved and then and then made a conscious effort like, OK, if I really want to devote my life to filmmaking, I got to step back from the festival. Um, wonderful. Our, OK, so we have a final five questions. I'm going to jump right into one. Um, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? First film I ever made was at Wash U, my first semester. Uh, it was called Heroin. It was sort of a music video for the, the uh, Velvet Underground song. Um, oh. And I just found it in my archiving in the garage uh, somewhere over there. There's some boxes. I Because I spent part of this fall doing some intensive archiving. My wife gave me the opportunity to do that. And I therefore then had the opportunity to stay married to her. Um, <laughs> cleaning out the garage uh so i found that and that was cool because it was it, there was it may have been different when you were at washington but when i was there there was only one class in filmmaking and it was taught by van ackley who was a faculty at webster two, university two maybe three yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and um and it was great because i and i'm still i'm still friends with van he's a, a great professor and great filmmaker himself but i did um stuff i did animation in it i you know like you're like this is my one time making a movie. I'm gonna throw it all in there. So I was doing, you know, animation and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm still proud of the techniques from that. So I guess that was the first film I made. And then, what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? The the best lick of ice I've ever received. Filmmaking adv <laughs> advice. <laughs> uh. I would well from from Altman. I would say, which was set a start date and tell everyone you're making the movie. Um, the best piece of advice I tell people is marry well. <laughs> uh, do you have a goal as a filmmaker? To be a films maker. <laughs> yeah, just keep making them. You know, like not every yeah, 
you should you yeah uh do i have a goal no i just to make films like we're i hate to say the word because it sounds pretentious but we're artists i mean we're certainly not business people so uh so the film that you are making the one that you're on make it as good as you can and and have your heart in it because at the end of the day, which may be in 25 years, you may be the only one left staring at a shelf with a bunch of crates on it. You better like your own film. So take your time with it. You know, that's the one thing is time. Time is, is the best friend of indie filmmakers. You know, if, if, it, if you have to spend a year editing, spend a year editing. If you spend a year rewriting, spend a year rewriting. But, um, but be, because at the end of the day, you've got to, be happy with your film more than anybody else if you could go back in time what's one piece of advice you would give yourself oh i can i didn't want to say anything but i've got a little invention here um uh i don't know uh don't vote for trump i don't you know i mean I, but i didn't so that's not really a thing um i don't know i think i have made some pretty good decision like i i'm lucky i don't have any decisions big life decisions that i regret i've been pretty careful about my decisions along the way and don't have any major regrets or even minor ones really i don't know uh i told my if i would say wear a hat because you're going to lose your hair and i did so i nailed that one you know my wife still doesn't know i'm bald that was <laughs> That's good. You guys don't know either, so that's no. good. Well, not until um, now. Yeah. Well, if don't believe everything you hear either. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, the one thing is maybe, and this took me a while. I mean, this took me a while to figure out was don't chase Hollywood, don't chase agents. Um, yeah, especially don't chase agents and managers. I spent a lot of time. An effort on that early in my career and i don't think it ever it really the best an agent ever did for me and i had a i've had agents at almost every agency uh and the best was one had prior to being an agent he'd been a used car dealer he came with me to a car dealership one sunday afternoon and got me a great deal on a nissan sentra and 20 years later we still have the car and it still runs so that was the best thing but i think this it took me a while to realize but the best thing to do with respect to agents is have good relationships with talent agents uh, because they will always have actors and they will always want to have their actors in your film. So they're always coming to you. You're not going to them. And that is much more important than having an agent repping you. So that's the answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, final question. Uh, is making movies hard? Yes. It was easy. Everyone would be doing it. Um, yeah, it's very hard. It's, I mean, I put on a very jolly front, as do you, Liz, you know, uh, and you're great at it. Uh, and Ulrich, you too. I barely know you, but still, you know. Um, and, you know, and the name of my book is The Cheerful Subversives Guide to Independent Homeland. And there's my little logo with a happy face on it. Um, but gosh, there's a, it's not easy. It is not easy. It's if it, uh, it takes a long time and it's tough and it's dangerous and for all kinds of reasons and it's stressful and it's not f and it's not fun most of the time. 
it is not fun. Um, and so you have to work at making it be enjoyable and at least work at forgetting the unenjoyable parts. So you forget about that and then you have enough. Then you're like, oh yeah, let's do this again. Why, why, why do this again? It's not, it's not fun. Um, but when it does come together, you know, uh, both the, the artwork itself, the, the piece, but also showing it at festivals, whether it's live or virtual, like that's when it's worth it. Like when, in, when an audience member laughs at, at a joke that you wrote or cries at a joke that you wrote, you know, um, that's, <laughs> there's nothing better than that. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's the other kind of mentality that it's taken me a, a long time to figure out is at the end of the day, we are performers, uh, in the same way that an actor is a performer putting on a play or a stand-up comedian is doing a, 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 an, an act. Um, at the end of the day, filmmakers, we perform, we put on a show, we put on a piece of entertainment that an audience watches and they react to. And that is why we do what we do. And that is why I enjoy festivals so much, and particularly going to live festivals, because that is literally the last chance you have to interact with an audience because uh, even at theatrical release you barely get an audience there and you can you can't even go to all of them even if you have a wide release so um and uh and for the same reason like if you think of it of a film as a performance like then you think about it in a slightly different way too like all the elements that go into like okay what is is this scene going to be entertaining to an audience you know is this costume going to pop out and are they going to appreciate it is this set going is this prop interesting you know for an audience um and uh yeah so that, that's sort of a philosophical approach that I'm, I'm starting to take to this whole thing is that it's all a show we're putting on so however you put it on ta-da, it's showtime <laughs> you know so there you go amazing so dan uh where should people where should people go if they want to find you? Like, go to Slam Dance, you have a website, just watch all your movies. Go to Sony and go about a block and a half south. And they can, <laughs> and don't come in because of COVID, but, uh, but if you're lucky, I'll give you some sourdough. Um, I've been making a lot of sourdough this year, too. That's the other thing. Um, uh, yeah, so if they want to find me, the best way is at danmervish.com, D-A-N-M-I-R-V-I-S-H.com. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at at Dan Mervish at Facebook, I'm it's probably the same. Uh, I'm not really an Instagrammer. I think I have an account there, but I don't really use it much. I haven't figured that one out. Uh, I'm not on Parlor, but maybe I should be. I don't know. Who knows? That's where all the kids with a lot of money are these days. So um, yeah, I'll go wherever the money is. I'll, you know, LinkedIn anywhere. Um, and uh, yeah, and then if you're interested in Slam Dance, I don't know when this is going to air. When is this going to air or be on? Uh, probably after this festival, uh, like a couple, couple, couple weeks at least. Um, so yeah, that's not going to work. But uh, but yeah, if you're interested in Slam Dance for the long run or or a screenplay competition, uh, just that's at SlamDance.com uh, for sure. And then um, yeah, and then you can find out more about Eighteen and a Half, my film, if you want to give us money, which we would appreciate because I've entertained you for free. Um, uh, just go to danmervish.com and then under features, you'll see 18 and a half. And, um, and, and that will point you in different directions. 
and show you some fun stills from the movie and things like that. Um, and then hopefully the movie will be coming to a festival near you this summer, maybe this fall, and then some sort of distribution afterwards. I don't know. Um, and then my second edition of my book is coming out July of this summer. So that's, it's already, if you look for Amazon, if you, yeah, the easiest way to buy it is through Amazon. Um, so that's a cheerful services guide to independent filmmaking. Um, and you know, you can get a version now and, uh, and then also buy the second edition. So all, all new stuff and a lot of new stuff in the second edition and it has a green cover. I can tell you that it has a green cover. <laughs> this one is in the first edition is purple in honor of Omaha central. Go big red. Yeah. And you'll notice the color <laughs> scheme between my book and the poster for Omaha, the movie. Oh, uh-huh. See how I did that there. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you look very carefully on the cover of the book, it's a map of Los Angeles, but it says Omaha right there <laughs> as if it's a tiny suburb of LA. You got to look carefully. Um, this is wonderful. It's like, the cure for pandemic blues is listening to you and then watching Ted Lasso, I think. So um, everyone should just go do those two things ad nauseum. Well, cool. And let me just say thank you, Liz, for that great piece you wrote that, and researched about all the distributors, or at no least problem. half, or the half of them that yeah. we talked to you. <laughs> the 38 that said yes, but thank you. I'm glad. Yeah, uh, that is really amazing work. And uh, I don't think people appreciate how rare that list is and how hard that list is to come by and to uh, update. So, yeah, for anyone who thinks they need to get a producer's rep, no, you just need Liz's list and give her 10%. <laughs> you know? That would be lovely. Thank you for yeah. being my, my pimp. <laughs> I, yes, absolutely. More than happy to pimp you up. Yeah. All right. okay, and all right, thank go. you. Yeah. Just, and thank you guys both for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. No, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. We'll talk to you soon. What do you remember about the conversation with Dan? I remember that Dan was like basically the the guest who doesn't need us to exist for the podcast to go well. <laughs> like he basically could just talk and talk and talk and everything that he would say was fantastic. Um, I remember I, I wrote down some questions while he was talking to for follow up. So it was that kind of conversation where it's like you kind of just throw the outline away. You maybe you gaze at it, but it's like you're, he's giving you so much that you could just talk forever. Um, I just thought it was really interesting that he'd been crowdfunding before crowdfunding existed. That he'd been raising money on MySpace <laughs> before Kickstarter was even a thing, um, and that he continues to use crowdfunding. And I think this it's very interesting to me, Liz, because we talked to a lot of different filmmakers, um, a lot of different people, and some people are like gung-ho crowdfunding like crowdfunding yay 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 and then some people are like crowdfunding who would waste their time doing that and why would i want to do that you know and i think it's just we talked to both sides and it just was interesting to really get in it into it with somebody who like that's how they make the raise the money or at least a bunch of the money for their films is they do the crowdfunding thing over and over and over again which is like Right, it's like a model that can can continue to exist. That's surprising. Yeah. Because you always hear like, oh, you only get one, you get maybe two. But he's had six. 
I think I, I'm not sure if this, is, this this may be false. People can correct me, but I'm pretty sure that I lot, looked looked at like all the crowdfunding campaigns that he had online from his previous recent projects, and I believe it was like this one raised like a hundred thousand dollars. This one raised fifty thousand dollars. This one raised forty thousand. Like, maybe not that exact numbers, but like each one had gone down, so like he was raising less money per film. That may not be true, but uh, I, I that's what I remember seeing. <laughs> Yeah, well, that makes sense because I do think there is a to a degree a limit of of how much your network will support you. Even though you know, I'm a crowdfunding idealist. I am so pro crowdfunding. I used to be a crowdfunding consultant. <laughs> um, I ran the crowdfunding department at Sundance. But I think what I remember from the conversation is like, oh, this is the model that I think I'm doing. So I was almost looking at what I think may be my future. Um, if I can presume as much, I hope I have a future as wonderful as Dan Mervish, who seems to be always just like a lovely, happy individual. But I was like, oh, that is what I do. I do these micro-budget indies that I read in a direct, and I crowdfund, and I cast the biggest names I have access to, and then I kind of play the game for to get to the next project, next project. I guess it made me feel great that you could do what Dan has done for six films, and he seems to have diversified his income through his book and all these podcasts and speaking opportunities. But I, what I took away most of all was him saying Mary Rich. And I'm just like, oh, shit, like, I did not do that. <laughs> and so the model, I don't know if it will work for everyone. Um, but I think I, I do agree that there probably is a level of patronage in what him and I are doing. And that that's scary. Because you're dependent on your network. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I always kind of felt like I would do the crowdfunding for the first feature and then I would never be able to crowdfund again and that'd be lucky to get the money on the first one. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's going to be my future too. I, I, I kind of just see it as like this working class filmmaker, which maybe doesn't really apply to him. But I think it does. You know, but it's just like this person who just makes the movies w without any help from from Hollywood or from for big companies or big checks or whatever, and they just figure out how to make each movie one after the other, and then they just continue. You know, and it's like, you know, we just talked to Larry Fezenden, who's going to be on the show in a few weeks, and uh, you know, like he's like Dan Mervish, like times like you know a thousand. <laughs> basically and maybe he's a little older too but you know like just the amount of stuff that he does is like incredible you know like like produced 80 projects like i think you know a good amount of them features it's like holy crap that's insane it's my favorite type of filmmaker and also favorite type of interview right because it's someone who does the work and who doesn't just talk but uh, puts things into action. Yeah. Like I, and maybe that is why crowdfunding is so popular for, for that type of filmmaker, but I mean, not necessarily Larry Fessenden, but for someone like Dan Mervish, because people love, I love uh, contributing directly to someone's dreams, right? And if you're seeing someone who's so fueled by making art and so much so that they've dedicated their whole life to these projects, then, um, I don't know. I, I really admire and respect that. And I want to give them all the credit in the world. So I love that working class kind of figurehead in this industry. Yeah, totally. Um, but Liz, I think uh, we should get on to uh, our next thing, which is Get Shorty. So you make movies, huh? 
I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. This week, we have filmmaker Shane Anderson, who was recommended by previous Get Shorty guest, Charn Star Anderson, uh, to talk about his film, His Guy Thursday. Why did I make a short? Honestly, it's a very doable format, uh, as opposed to features or other kinds of things. Um, you know, you can get a group of friends and you can shoot on a weekend, and that's precisely what we did for this. It was made, it was shot in two days with like a hard, you know, a couple of hours of rehearsal the night before. I love features. I'd love to do a 90-minute black-and-white gay scribble comedy, but obviously those take a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of people, uh, whereas the short film was sort of, it became, it was like a two-hander, it was one room, and so you could get it done in a short amount of time. Why this story, as opposed to a lot of guys sort of my age, I came out as gay a little bit later in life, like five to seven years after the fact, um, and as a result a lot of the work I did up until that point didn't really have that front and centre, and this was the first sort of time I tried to do a film that where the queerness was there like as part of the fabric of the film I thought that kind of sassy banter and that heightened that little bit of heightened reality sort of really suited gay characters quite well um, and so I sort of concocted this little uh, re they call it the remarriage genre which is something like his girl Friday or my favorite wife where it's people who have split up and then before the movie and then they get back together at the end of the movie, and so I thought that would suit a fun little tale, a two-hander set in one room. How did your team come up with the funds? Uh, I mean, I work a day job, and I saved some money, and I put it into the film, essentially. Uh, we did it on about 2,000 Australian dollars, which is roughly 1,500 American dollars, and my cinematographer kindly donated uh, his equipment as part of the budget of, of the film. I just sort of put in the biggest expenditure was the uh, location and uh, music licensing for that one old-school cue that was really hard to find and get. Before making the short I didn't really have any expectations of something happening to my career because of it uh, mainly because I'd done like features and shorts before and they went absolutely nowhere so I'm so used to the pick yourself back up dust yourself off and go on to the next thing kind of momentum but something that happened after the film that I noticed was it was sort of the first time I really got to solidify a part of my voice as a filmmaker in terms of the staging and the camera work and the actors all kind of working in unison. Previously I'd just kind of like thrown a lot of things at the wall to see what stuck. I'd throw the camera around and do all sorts of weird things and some of it was good, some of it wasn't, but this was sort of the first time it, the piece had like a cohesion to it. Um, and since then I've found a lot of the stuff I'm making has it's a more of a complete work, so it may not have done anything professionally, but creatively I got a lot out of it. Would I do anything differently? There's one little weird cut in the middle that I had to kind of... I hadn't blocked it out properly, uh, and so there's this point in the middle where we just had the most hideously awkward cut. So I covered it up by making like a fake real change in post. Um, I figure out a better way around that, uh, but other than that, not really. Uh, what attracted me to the uh, form, the black and white and the 4 by 3 I mean, like, I'm a huge lover of old Hollywood movies and screwball comedies in particular, you know, uh, His Girl Friday is one of my favourite films of all time, um, and while there's sort of a creative aspect to it in, you know, a lot of my, my feature and a bunch of my shorts beforehand have been shot in like anamorphic, so super widescreen, so this is the first time I'd shot anything in 4x3, so you kind of have to 
rethink your brain and with the black and white too we production design for black and white and I production design the short myself as well because <laughs> finding people is hard you know you have to rethink colors not in terms of the vibrancy but in terms of like the contrast values it was very interesting I did a lot of tests of you know I, I got changed into a bunch of shirts and figured you know what colors worked better in terms of you know across skin tones and things like that but personally uh, I wanted to do this because you know I love those kinds of old Hollywood films but every now and then when I'm watching it there's a little bit of sadness when I kind of realize I'm never gonna kind of get to see someone like me in that form, in that genre, because that was made, you know, the production co, but even without the production co, there really wasn't any kind of explicit uh, queerness in film. It was all subtext, and a lot of it still is even now. So that was kind of my way of throwing my hat in the ring and being like, here's a piece of cinema you know, a genre you know, a style you know, but here is some characters in it that you've never seen in it before. Um, what did you think of his guy Thursday? So uh, I love old films. So you know, throw something in four by three, put it in black and white, throw some classic music on it, get the old text up there, and you know, you got me. You've got me for six minutes at least, um, maybe even for fifteen. Like it doesn't really matter if you're gonna give me that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in. But uh, but no. So I love the old school touch. That's what I wrote. I thought it was really fun. Um, I thought the acting was fun. I thought the characters, like, like I, I don't know if you've seen, um, you know, his girl Friday, uh, but uh, it's like, you know, is it his gal Friday? Maybe it's his gal Friday. Anyways, whatever it is, um, it's like they, you could tell that they, in, like, they went for that style with the fast talking. Like they're really talking fast. They're really throwing lines back and forth with each other. Um, they're really embracing the silliness of the of the script and and the story. And I just really love the way that the performances came through. I thought it was really fun. And I mean, there was a couple of points where like you could you could see a stumble, and they're like, but they just went with it anyways. And I, I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was good. Um, I also. Uh, thought that there was a few technical issues that like sort of took away from the experience. Like there was a time where he like he hit his mic, um, you know, one of the actors, and like you could hear the from it, you know. And it's like just something that you could edit edit it out, you know. But they left it in, uh, and I can't remember. There was like one other thing like that, and I just felt like, gosh, if they just had just cleaned up those little tiny things, like it would have been like that, like one percent better, you know. Um, but uh, overall. I just thought it was fun. It was light. It was a perfect length. Um, it made me smile and laugh. Good times. I was saying that I'm here to bring the negativity, but I was kidding. So it was a really stupid joke to make. <laughs> uh, but point is, yeah, I think it's great at the physical comedy. I, I have a true affection for screwball comedies. And so I totally agree. It had this affectation of screwball comedies. Where I think the film got weak is when it was supposed to be more vulnerable and more serious when the couple finally cracks and they act a little bit more genuine with each other. And for me, the performances didn't get to that point, even though I think the direction and the staging kind of came to a head to break down the characters and show more authenticity in that moment. Um, so for me, it's like, it was like such a wonderful short and then it just got a few notches below wonderful towards the end because mm. I think that the performances didn't get to where I wanted them to get to 
in terms of being like a really exposed, vulnerable character. So like that's all. So, that's my only negative note. So basically, the quippy, fast talking stuff worked for you, but it's like when it got to the emotional so well. part, it did that part didn't hold up for you. Correct, mm. correct. And I thought, um, I, I call him the instigator. I don't know his character, but the guy who comes over and traps his um, ex lover. I was like, I know this guy can get there. I just want him to like slow down for a second and deliver his lines with a little bit more patience with himself. Mm. Like there was like this weird ground of like, are we still doing the parody or are we not doing the parody anymore? And I just don't, it wasn't clear. Well, I mean, I will say that I did, I did notice the, um, the, 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 the change in tempo and the change in, like when they start to get more serious, you know, and it, and it kind of stopped becoming a game. And then, you know, he kind of let his actual, um, you know, feeling show a little bit. Um, was it the, the most best performance in those moments? Not necessarily. But to me, it, honestly, it didn't really matter. <laughs> it just is like <laughs> I was already in bed. I'm not going to turn it off in the last like minute, you know, because of, of whatever. But yeah, I mean, oh, that's true. I was with it. I didn't turn it off. I didn't pause it. I watched it all the way through. So I totally agree with you there. You're already invested. I thought the ending was fun. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, I guess I guess for this kind of movie, like it does to me, it's like if it doesn't make me cry or like really make me open up on the emotional part of it, it's like it still works. It still works. Yeah. Yeah. But good job, Shane Anderson, who, who possibly maybe or may not be related to Charn Star Anderson, who is one of our favorites. Yeah, totally. Of the show. Charn Star. Um, well done. Yeah, he also sent another filmmaker who we're hopefully going to get on the show too, um, who I don't, and I'm pretty sure isn't related because <laughs> they have a completely different name. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, thank you, Charn Star, for advocating for some other uh, filmmakers that in films do you like uh, to get on the show because. You know, we get quite a few of these, but not that many. And, uh, you know, I'm, I really want to try to, you know, like, yeah, just amplify more voices and get more films out there. So we have we have a few coming up that I'm excited to share with you, Liz. But, uh, yeah, we need more. So send us your movies oh. and send us your weird, crazy stuff. Send us the weirdest thing. Yeah, that we you... want more pimples and nipples. Yeah, just more of them. What was the one called um, uh, that we oh. that you watched that you sent from a long time ago with the with the uh, the zit thing? What was that one called? I can't remember the name. Oh, um, it's not it's not custard. Oh, it's not like custard. It's not yeah, custard. yeah. Oh, so we need good. more like yeah, that. Gross us out. <laughs> I want to be gross. Show us your again. practical effects. Um, but <laughs> yeah, um, but Auric. You have mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. So this week on You've Got Mail, um, we have some more comments from our good old friend, good old pal, Gary Kennedy. Um, but I also wanted to uh, ask Liz about uh, her film Lady Parts that we've been hearing about on the show for a long time. And I know there's an update. I know there's an update, but I don't know if Liz wants to get into it or not. She's seems nervous. Oh, I'll just say that I'm no longer directing Lady Parts. So that's official. Uh Oh, yeah, that's been official okay. for about a month. I had to drop the project because um, the script that people wanted to go forward with was not the script that I thought was the 
best script. Let's just put it that way. And we were under time crunch. So basically, I felt like I had no creative influence over what story we were telling as a director. And um, it didn't feel fun anymore. It didn't feel Mm. like it was going to be a fun collaborative process. So I dropped the project. And then after that, I got approached by another feature and I said no to them because they were also in a rush. What? You said no to another Um, movie? Ah, Liz, come on, man. I know. They were lovely, wonderful people, (laughs) but they weren't ready and they were in a rush. And I knew that I'd be bottlenecking them if they were going to go forward. They wanted to shoot by November. And then I just pitched on a third feature and I'm waiting to hear back. Wow. who knows what's going to happen. How do you get these opportunities to, to like put, be up for movies? Do people just email you and be like, hey, Liz, you're awesome. I want uh, you to direct our movie. This this is new. So, yeah, I've been approached by shorts before in the past. And I've pretty much said yes to anyone who's ever asked me. But this feature thing was like uh, unexpected to have two projects approach me right after I dropped a project that I've been attached to for like three years. So it made me feel like, oh, okay, I have, there's some value. Wow. <laughs> I have some value. Even if one project didn't appreciate me, someone else might in the future. And so I'm working on figuring out what the next project is. So I'm gonna press you. So if you have yeah. till November for pre-production, why does that feel like too much of a rush for you i mean was the script not done yet was there no money like what what was the reason yeah they were about to crowdfund and um you know i had just gone through experience where someone had fundraised with my name attached to a project and then i dropped the project so i didn't want to go through something like that i felt really uncomfortable there Mm. uh, because it felt like they approached me and then they were going to crowdfund and it felt like the attachment that i might make would like if I said yes to the project, they were going to use my name to crowdfund. Mm. And so I, that felt like a little rush. And then the second thing is, yeah, they we would spend the next few months getting the script into gear, but it wasn't into gear yet. And in addition to that, I didn't, the, the person who approached me, who by the way is like the most lovely individual, and I think she listens to this podcast and I want her to know, do I really, really like her? Um, it's her baby. It's her film. She was going to star in it and she commissioned the script and all these things. And I just realized like this would be a level where I wouldn't have the control that I think Mm. I want to have as a director. And Mm. if it's low budget and you're making other concessions, I don't want to be rushed. I want to, I want to know that we're going to go and make the movie when the movie's ready, not through an arbitrary date in the calendar. Mm. I want us to like come together as a team and say, this is the story we want to tell, let's make this movie. And I felt like I was robbed of that on on Lady Parts. Mm. So I didn't want to be robbed of that again. So did you like, is there a full draft of the script for this project? Like, did you like that draft? Or was it like, there wasn't even? Yeah, okay. I thought it was decent. Mm. I thought it was decent. I didn't think it was there yet. But think of, like, here's my perspective. Like, you and I have hard enough trouble scheduling recordings of this podcast with my calendar. So, like, how am I supposed to work my day job, take care of my son, do the podcast, and then also go through a pretty pretty intense development of the script for the next few months? Right. I just didn't think it was possible. Well, I guess here's the follow-up question, and maybe the last question about this that I'll force you to answer. <laughs> but um, is there, like, a script that you would have been given that you know given all the other variables like you know person who commissioned the script in the star in the movie producer whatever all this stuff 
would is there a script that you'd been like oh my god like I'm so in for this you know let's shoot November put my name on it everything like is it is it a matter of the movie being better you know or the script being better Um, or different not necessarily better you know it depends. So this third film that I just pitched on that I um, read the script for, I love the script. And I immediately finished it and was like, I want to make this. And that film has a bigger budget. So I know that I'm going to be compensated more appropriately. And I know that there's like a team behind it that has a casting director, that has a financier. Like there's an actual infrastructure there. So for me, um, the second feature sorry, the one after Lady Parts that approached me, they didn't even have like a producer, producer on board. Mm, You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So if there's an infrastructure, if there's a team and if the script is there and if I know where I stand with this bigger feature, I know I'm a director for hire. I know there's going to be politics. I know I'm going to navigate that and have to make a lot of concessions, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to be paid and it's going to like really help my career. But this micro budget film that approached me there's no boss right now, so I would have to be the boss. I would not be paid appropriately. The script isn't ready. Um, and at such a low rate, I would want final cut. Mm-hmm. Wow. So. Well, Liz. Yeah, it's a negotiation of what your priorities are. Yeah. Well, congratulations that you're in this position where you're getting offered features. That's pretty amazing, you know. You. Um, well, but I don't think I've... I've None of it is real. None of, <laughs> literally none of it is real. It's so fun. You're going through the process, like, though. I mean, it's like you're even yes. if it all was to fall apart, you're going to have more experience from having gone through these interviews, reading these scripts, these negotiations, whatever. Yeah. It's like all helping you get better at part of the thing that we have to do as filmmakers, you know, so... I totally agree. And I've always had really bad pitches. I'm shitty at pitching. And so now you're totally right. Now I can learn how to get slightly better <laughs> at pitching myself. Um, all right. Well, for all your Gary Kennedy fans out there, we're not going to rob you of our Gary Kennedy. So I'm going to read at least one, maybe two of these. So this is what he said from episode 302. Um, I'm not sure if this is like a burn or a dig or a mean thing or just a stupid <laughs> dumb joke. I'm going to read it anyways. I don't think Derek's offended by it because he did comment on it, but here's what Gary said about uh, pimples and nipples. He says, pimples and nipples, they say put you your money where your mouth is. I guess Derek misunderstood that saying. He really went for it on this, and that takes guts. And I thought the set dressing was pretty well done. Um, is that like a burn? Is that a dig? Or is that just a dumb joke? <laughs> Do you know, like, first of all, I love the idea of someone listening to this podcast for the first time and being like why are they focusing on this guy named gary kennedy for like 10 minutes um if he's i don't think gary kennedy is very sarcastic from my experience mm, of gary kennedy mm-hmm. so i thought that was a genuine compliment about oh, okay there you go uh and then do you do you know gary I don't, do you like I don't is he just this amazing guy who no, just comes to like okay know. thank you gary for like humoring us all the time uh derek derek responded thanks for checking out the short i had the best time set dressing i used my apartment and took my time painting and buying random shit on craigslist laugh out loud uh and then gary says uh it was really well done so yeah, yeah very nice that's genuine that's a genuine <laughs> comment um anyways <laughs> and then on episode 303 gary says i'd loved hearing how many hats anthony wore while making his film and the trailer gave me a beyond the black rainbow feel 
um, which I tried watching that movie and I was not into it. So I don't know if there's other fans of that film. But anyways, so um, yeah, I think we got to get done with this episode though. So if you want to be like Gary Kennedy and write a YouTube comment, you can jump over to our YouTube page now at still 210 subscribers. We have not had a new subscriber in a week. Um, or you can support the show on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash podcast. Give what you can. Thanks in advance. Thanks to all you wonderful people who are doing that every month. You're amazing. Uh, if you want to send a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesheart.com, you can do that, uh, which would be awesome. We will read it on the show. That's also where you send your get shorties, um, and we will you know, watch them, and eventually they'll get on the show, probably. Um, or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which we still have not had one since January now. Starting to feel like people hate us, um, but that's okay. Um, you know, no new iTunes reviews. I mean, we're getting one a month for, at least for a while, sometimes two a month. Anyways. Um, and then finally, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard uh, Podcast. But thanks for listening. Thanks to Dan Mervish for being on the show, making this episode happen. And uh, as far as Liz and I, I can be found at uh, AllRipB on Twitter and Instagram. Liz, where are you? Liz Manishaw on Twitter. Liz Manishaw Film on Instagram. Nice. Uh, you can also check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode. And thanks to Editor Cameron for making this one happen. Editor Cameron, you're the best. Cut out all the stuff that needs to be cut out. Uh, we appreciate it. And, yeah, we'll talk to you guys next week. Dad, where are you? He'll be back. I have to have faith. He'll be back. I wanted to hear his answer. I mean, I would have it. <laughs> <laughs> um.